0: Well, uh, tonight we're carrying on our series in 1 Samuel, uh, Dawn of a Kingdom, and um, just very brief recap to uh, go over what we went through last week. You remember we um, heard about the Ark of the Covenant, God in a box, and the, the Israelites were using that as basically like their lucky charm when they went into battle against the Philistines. It didn't go well for them. The Ark ends up getting stolen by the Philistines. And then the Philistines end up having to take it from city to city, as God brings judgment upon them, wherever it goes with plagues and things like that, to the point where eventually they just think, right, enough with this, let's just give it back much easier, which is what they do. And then the ark ends up actually just being put on a hill um, for 20 odd years or so, so that no one sort of goes near it because of everything that's happened so far. And, uh, and that's where it gets left. And um, then at the end of, of chapter seven, um, the people of Israel, come to Samuel, who is our sort of key character at the moment in the story, and, and essentially Samuel judges them and sort of says, look, you, you need to put away all of the false gods that you've been worshipping. You need to repent of your sin. And, um, and so that, that they see the truth in that, and that's what they do. And um, they go to a place called Mizpah, and um, they repent of their sin there, But while they're there, um, the Philistines find out again that that's where they are. They they get word that that's where the the Israelites have gone. And so they confront them once more. And um, understandably, having been defeated once before, the Israelites are very scared and frightened. And they go running to Samuel and ask him to intervene for them or intercede for them with God and say, please, can you pray for us and make an offering? Um, and Samuel does. He, he goes to the Lord and prays, makes an offering to him. And as he does so, God thunders and scatters the Philistines' uh, armies and they're defeated. And Israel win the day, win the battle. And after that point, there's then peace in Israel for, for years. And um, Samuel continues to be they are judge and sort of go from from town to town. And that's where we get to at the end of chapter 7. And then tonight, we're in chapter 8. That's going to be our focus for this evening. So um, I'm just going to read uh, verses 1 to 6 to start off with. Um, Hopefully, they'll be up on the screens behind me. But if you've got a Bible or on a a phone, then feel free to follow along there. Uh, 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 to 6, says this. When Samuel became old... Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, "Give us a king to judge us," and Samuel prayed to the Lord. So, the elders of Israel they get together and they come to Samuel, and they basically demand that they get a king, like all the other nations that they can see. They they they're done having these judges, and. uh, Essentially, they're sort of done, I suppose, with God as their king at the same time. And understandably, Samuel is displeased by this. He has been the judge. And so for them to say, we don't want a judge anymore, is probably a little bit offensive and hurtful to him. And um, actually, Samuel's response can serve as a great model to us. When we, someone says something to us that is perhaps undermining or hurtful or offensive, rather than going to other people first, he goes straight to God. That's his first move. He, he takes it to the Lord. I think if more of us were like that in our reactions, the world would be a better place. Um, he goes to God and he prays. And uh, he, he tells God that they've requested a king. And um, God basically answers and says, yeah, o- obey their voice. Then he goes on and explains to Samuel that they're actually not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me like they have done since I led them out of Egypt. They've been doing this all along, like, welcome to my world. And uh, he says, but go, go, and, go and tell them that I could make them a king, but I want to warn them first. I want to give them a heads up of really what they're letting themselves in for. Like, what is life going to look like for them with a king over them? So Samuel then goes back to... Um, Uh, the the Israelite elders, and uh, we'll pick up again. Oh no, then he he goes and he gives them this warning. And uh, for eight verses or so, he lays it out in like pretty stark terms of what life would be like under a king. And it doesn't look good for them. He's saying that, look, if you have a king, he'll probably take lots of your land for himself. You know, the best land that you've got, he'll take it for himself, and probably he'll then share it out as well amongst some of his like senior leaders. And he'll also conscript loads of your men into an army. And he'll take the rest of your men and women to be sort of like servants to cook and tend to his fields. And he'll also take all of your best livestock as well. Now to us, those things might seem like not that big of a deal, but that's basically everything that they had is like livestock and land. And and all of a sudden they're being told it's gonna be taken away from them in some way. And Samuel finishes his warning by saying, Essentially, Israel, you will become enslaved again. That's what it will feel like with this king ruling over you. That's what it will feel like to you. And when when it gets to that point where you feel that, you'll cry out to God in desperation, but he won't do anything because that's what you wanted. So Samuel lays it out for the elders, and um, then at the end of that, They come back to him, and they say this. We'll pick it up again, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Standard. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. So Samuel goes back to God with the same thing. It's like, they really want a king. They're demanding that they get a king. And then perhaps surprisingly, God just says, okay, obey their voice and make them a king. And then Samuel goes back to the elders with that message and he sends the elders away, back to their sort of cities and towns. And then that's it. That's the end of chapter eight. And we're held in this moment of suspense like, well, what's going to happen next? And we'll get to that in the next few weeks. But tonight I want to look a little bit at What's really going on here? Like, why is God sort of giving into this? Why are the Israelites demanding this? What's, what's going on in this part of the story? I mean, these, these Israelites, they, they get themselves in a right old pickle sometimes, don't they? I mean, like, not just in the stories that we've looked at so far, but all the way through history, it's so up and down for them. And sometimes they seem to be doing really well, and then other times less so. I feel like this is certainly sort of one of those times. They, they had peace. In their land, like God defeated their enemy. They had peace in their land, but they're still not happy. They still don't want to judge. They're like, well, we're done with that now. And actually, God, thanks for defeating our enemy, but we're also sort of done with you as our king. We want to be like the rest of the world. God even like warns them. He's like, this ain't going to go well for you at all. Gives them a second chance, and they're adamant. No, don't care. Don't want to hear it. That's what we want, we want a king, like them. I can see their king, I want a king like that, and I can see that they have borders. I want a nation like that, that has borders on it, I can map it out. God says, fine, fine. Part of me, having had a bit of a go at the Israelites, I kind of get it, actually, because if you remember a few weeks ago, when I spoke on Eli's sons, they, were not good men, they were worthless, they were corrupted, they were sleeping with the women in the tent of meeting, they were exploiting the people of Israel and their worship and and being greedy and taking all of the offerings for themselves, they were scandalous, rascal men. You know, Eli had those two sons. And then, the start of our passage... You read, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Okay, how many did he have? Oh, he had two. One was Joel, blah, 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 blah. And then you find out his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, if I was an Israelite elder, my judge alarm bells would be going off all over the place at this point. Having seen Eli trying to appoint his two sons as chief priests and see how that turned out, you know, seeing that Samuel's appointed his two sons to be judges, it seems to be going in the same sort of way, I would definitely be tempted to pipe up and say something. I think that's probably fair, that you'd want to at least say something, intervene in some sort of way. But the thing is, that's actually not their reason. That would actually be quite a valid one, I think. But if that was their reason, there were other things that they could do before having to get a king. They could have just... Not had the hereditary judges, i.e. the ones from Samuel's family, they could have just said, oh, we'll start again. We'll get someone from another family. That would have been a much sort of more straightforward option if that was the reason, if they had an issue with that. The real reason, as they say themselves, is just that they want to be like the nations. They simply want to be like the world around them. And they say that. They're at least honest. They come to him and say, this is what we want, and this is why we want it. They get warned, they don't heed it, and that's the path they decide to choose. And on, on first reading for like us again, sort of 21st century, stuff like this, you're like, well, it's not that big of a deal, is it? Like, so what if they want a king? Because it, it's not that different to a judge. Like, it's still just the figurehead over the nation Maybe I guess there might be some like structural changes or some changes to the hierarchy and how the system works, but for the most part, it sort of just looks like it's a leadership change or a change of label for the same thing. So is it such a problem that that's what they want to go for, that that's what they want to have for themselves? On the surface to us, it might seem, no, it doesn't look that big of a deal, but it really is. It really is. If you go back, further back into the Old Testament, and read from the book of Exodus, God says to Moses that Israel is to be a holy nation. That's what he sets out for them to be. I'm gonna make them a holy nation. And holy, originally, that word meant to be set apart from, to be distinct, to be unlike. They're supposed to be a distinct nation, a nation that is unlike all of the others. So when they say, we want a king because we want to be like the nations, they're undermining one of the most fundamental aspects of what gives them their status as the people of God. This is huge. This is such a shift for for what it seemed like God's plan was for them to be. One of the the commentators, David Sumura, puts it like this. Just as the Israelites were the people of a God who is unique and incomparable with any other God, so they were supposedly incomparable with any other nation. So what they hoped to do was exactly to throw away their special status as a chosen people of God in order to identify themselves with the nations of this world. They're they're giving up that holy, set apart from they're just chucking it away. Seems so reckless of them. They're allowing themselves to be governed by, tempted by, drawn in by the world around them, the cultures that they can see and observe, and they're, being, they're putting more value in what they can actually see. I can see their king and I can see their land, I know where it stops and starts, instead of putting value in what they believe, what they've been promised by God from years before. It, it's tragic, and I want, it, I want us to feel that, because it, it's a big deal. It might not seem it to us like today, but it is. It's a sad, sad moment for them to make this request. And again, I actually do kind of empathize with them to some extent, because I don't know about you, but I definitely know that in my Christian walk so far, it all, almost always seems like the easier option would be just to follow the way of the world than live out the Christian life. Like, it's always much easier to just sort of get into the slipstream of culture than it is to, like, swim upstream against it. You know, when you go to a club and your values are totally different to everyone else's, you're chatting to students in halls and the way that you think about the world is totally different to the way they do, it's always easy just to slot in, isn't it? I think so. I can see that in my own life. And so... Again, I kind of see how this could happen. You know, being governed by what they see in the world around them, it's easier. But again, in, even in the New Testament, God is very clear when Jesus says we're not supposed to be of the world. So why on earth then does God seem to buckle to their demands? He, he seems so quick. He gives them a little warning maybe, but after that, he just caves. He says, okay. Yep, do what you want. It's almost as if, you know, God's like in such a state of despair. He's so frustrated with the Israelites at this point. He's just like, stuff it. Just do what you want. I'll leave you be. That's, that's kind of what it looks like. That's kind of where our story ends. You think, what? What on earth is going on? Well, actually, perhaps you saw this coming. That's not what's going on. Because <laughs> that's not what our God is like. I know that for a fact. He's, he's not one just to react to a situation in frustration or anger. Scripture says he's not quick to anger. So I know that's not what he's like. And therefore, I can be pretty sure that that's not what's going on. On first reading, I know it looks like an admission of defeat. It, it looks like he's just giving way whenever we're reading scripture and we encounter a point that seems to go against the character of God or the God that we know, or it just seems like a little bit surprising that he would do this, or I don't really, I can't work out the logic. We have the advantage of having the whole thing, right? We we literally have the whole of scripture. So we can take the step back and look at the bigger narrative and see what's going on. And if we were to do that for this, what's going on here, thinks it, seemed, it seems so confusing on first reading, you'll find that this scenario has been promised, foretold by God hundreds of years before through Moses. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is, is preaching, speaking to the Israelites. And he says these words, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Sound familiar? You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. God knew this was going to happen the whole time. He promised that it would happen. He was going to establish a king. He he was going to choose. It was going to be his choice. He's very clear about that. But even though it looks like an amazing moment where one of God's promises is fulfilled, this moment, this chapter, is actually much bigger than that. It's much grander than that. This, this chapter, in many ways, is the turning point in the whole of the Old Testament. Like The dials just hit the top, and it's just ticks over right here in the passage that we've read. I want us to get this, so I'm going to paint a bit of a picture so that we really understand what's going on in the the wider narrative that is the history of the world. Our series is called The Dawn of a Kingdom, right? Right back at the beginning, I don't know if you remember this, but let me see if I can jog your memory. We heard a little bit from the book of Judges and how that's what was preceding the story that we were about to enter into. And at that era in uh, the people of God, their history, they were ruled by Judges, but it was Total chaos and horrible things were happening. And th- th- that book ends with the verse that says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone was just doing what they want. Uh, anarchy in the people of God. Consider that the night, okay? If we're thinking about a dawn, that's the night, that's the darkness. And then we enter our story, the 1 Samuel book in our Bible. And, and slowly but surely each week, what's happening is just the light from the dawn, from the sunrise, is beginning to grow. Slowly at first, you know, chapter one, when we meet Elkanah and his family and Hannah, who can't have a child, there's not a lot happening, it seems, but there's enough light there to start sort of making out shapes. Put yourself in this. Imagine the sun was rising. A bit of definition on the landscape. Then chapter two, by this point, Samuel's been born, and And Hannah sings this beautiful song of praise to God. And then at the end, she seems to sort of veer into prophecy about a king. She says, the Lord will give strength to his king. But at this point, you're like, what king? There isn't one. What is she talking about? And then all of a sudden, for the first time, there's a bit of color. Not just definition anymore, but like a deep orange starts to just touch everything around. And if you've ever seen a sunrise, you you will be able to visualize this, that the light, the glow of the dawn just begins to to touch everything. No surface is left. And the oranges and the yellows and the pinks begin to grow as as Samuel grows up and starts ministering and is called by God and judges Israel every single week. It's building, it's building, it's building. But still, the sun hasn't risen. The sun hasn't popped up over the horizon yet. Years ago, I was fortunate enough to go to... um, the Grand Canyon in Arizona, in America, with my family. And um, I actually had to double check that this was a, a true memory because I was like, I might just lie to the congregation. I better double check. I texted my mum and I was like, Did I actually go and see the sunrise? Because you know, sometimes you think you remember something, but all you've done is seen photos, heard stories, put two and two together, and then all of a sudden, you're like, I was there, <laughs> which more than not is not the case. So I texted my mum, I was like, Did I come? Did I really get up early to go see the sunrise? And then within minutes, bless her, she had come back with like a blow by blow account with photos and captions of who was there and when, and what we were wearing, and all this. I was like, great, got like detective inspector there under the line. And um, so I know that I'm not lying to you, this is true. I, I went to the Grand Canyon and saw the sunrise. The, the rock there is already orange in color, yeah, it's beautiful, but it's very cold before the sun comes up. And so we walked there in like jumpers and everything, and, and the light begins to increase. And the light begins to just almost glow over the rock, like it's like embers even as the shadows are moving. And as it begins to you know, glow and the light increases, you can work out on the horizon, the point where the sun is going to break. You can see it, because that's where the glow is most intense. But at that point, it was still really cold. And we sat there on these rocks, and I probably, I imagine, was just sort of like, this better be worth it, this better be worth it, this better be worth it. It's still cold. And you can see it's getting more and more intense, more and more intense, more and more intense. And then all of a sudden, the slightest arc of the sun just peaks over the horizon. Everything everything over there is silhouetted because the light's coming past it. And then when it does, there's a burst of light, and for the first time, that was when I actually felt the warmth of the sun. It was that moment. Admittedly, it wasn't a lot at that point, but I knew then that the day had begun and that it was going to get warmer until the sun was at its peak. That moment that I've just described is right here. That's what's happening in this moment. The sun just, just peeking over the top and all of a sudden, for the first time, a little bit of warmth. And we know where this story goes, so we know that it's gonna get warmer. We know that the sun is going to rise. Like I did on that day, I knew that it was gonna get warmer. That is the moment that we're in right here. And you think, why why on earth is this such a big deal? Why is Chris going on about sunrises? Well, partly just to stay on theme with the (laughs) the title of the, the series. But also because there is more going on here. As well as being able to look back in the bigger picture, the grand narrative that is God's plan over creation, we also are fortunate enough now to be able to look ahead. And we're part of that ahead. We're in the future from this point anyway. And if you do, from, from here, the end of chapter 8, very quickly after that, we're introduced to King Saul. Then after that, King David, who was considered by many to be a great king. He was flawed, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but revered by many. It's from King David, over 40 generations later, his line leads to, Jesus. Christ the King. That's why this is such a big moment. Right here, it's about to begin. Lots has happened up to this point, I know. But right here, things are hotting up, as it were. The sun is going to rise. It's going to get hotter and warmer. So it's not the case. You know, as I said earlier, on first reading, it's like almost that the will of God is having to give over some ground to the will of man. Like there's some sort of like tug of war going on. We always, I seem, I swear we think of this, like think of the will of God and the will of man on some sort of horizontal plane, working it out in percentages. Like here, it's like the Israelites have got 90% their way, and God has like got 10. I know I've done this before. Sometimes when I'm feeling pretty confident about myself, and I'm like, yeah, I've got a plan. Like, come to God. I'm like, hey, God. I know you've got like the master plan over creation and all, but hey, check this out. Here's my plan, here's my will for my life. I'll make you a deal. This is ridiculous. I'll go 60-40 with you on it, all right? (laughs) I'm being very generous, so take it or leave it. Like, sometimes we do get like that, which is ridiculous. It's nonsense, but I think we fall into that trap, don't we, of thinking that one is having to concede to the other. But that's not what's going on here at all. It's totally vertical. The will of God, his plans, his purpose over everything that he has made, the whole universe is always constant, perfect, pure, good, right in all of its ways, unwavering. And it will come to pass. It's then within that, the our will, the will of man, we, we meander our way through, we, we slip and we slide, we, we take three steps forward and like two steps back and then we go left and right. But it's always, always within God's perfect plan for our lives. And I honestly believe that, that some of you tonight need to hear that. That yes, you, you have a will for your life, you make decisions, of course you do. But God is, is true to his word. He's made promises over you that will come true. And maybe even for some of you tonight, there's things that spring to mind, things that you feel like God has promised you when you were younger or as you've been growing up, and you think, how's that going to happen? If he's promised it, it will. I think some people need to hear that tonight. He always brings about what he has promised. So even though we think that the Israelites are getting their way in our story, which, which they kind of are, it's only because that it fits into God's plan for his will, for them, and for mankind. Because where he is heading, at this point, they had no idea, no idea. But where he is heading is so much bigger, even so much grander than King David, this great king, as many saw him. He's thinking way ahead to Jesus. That, that's what he's got in his sights at this moment. That's what he had in his sights when he made that promise in Deuteronomy. It's all coming to pass. In verse 20, earlier, we saw that the, the elders, they extended their request a little bit. They gave a couple of extra reasons from when they did it the first time. And we read that they, they want a king because they want to be like all the nations. We knew that already, which I suppose means they want status, right? in the sight of others. or Their king would judge them. They wanted a king that would judge them, a figurehead, someone to mediate for them. And then the third thing was that they wanted a king to go out before them and fight their battles, someone who could defeat their enemy, which was in, in that scenario previously the Philistines. What they didn't know was that one day all of those things would be met perfectly and completely in Jesus. You ever needed a king, a judge, someone to fight your battles? The best candidate the world has ever had, Jesus. More than that, though, for you today, for all of us, Jesus meets all of our deepest Desires and longings, and I'm not talking about like, oh, I have a deep desire for this car in the future. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the stuff that is almost too difficult to articulate, like in the very depths of your soul. <laughs> you, you, the longing for security and safety in your life. You're like, I, I, I wanna feel like I'm looked after. I wanna know that someone's always looking out for me. I, I want to be free. I want to feel free. There's stuff from my past, things that I've done, things that have been done to me that I just can't seem to escape from. And I just want to know what freedom is for real. I want to be loved. I want to be loved, not because of what I've done or what I can achieve, what my potential is, but just because of me. Just because of who I am. You want fulfillment, you want purpose, you want a reason to be, don't we all? Doesn't all of mankind yearn to have some sort of reason to exist, to be here at all? All of those things, everything in the very depth of our being that is crying out for something can be met perfectly, completely and totally in Jesus Christ the King. Everything, those things that we can't even utter, all met in him. And if you don't know him tonight, you're like, that sounds amazing, but he's not my king. He can be. It's very easy for him to become your king. And if you do know Jesus tonight, amazingly, you're part of the royal family I mean, what a king he is. The moment that you say, I want you to be king in my life. I want to follow you all my days. You don't just get to then become like a servant, like the warning that God gave earlier, the one who's going to tend to the cooking or or the cattle or something like that. All of a sudden, in that moment, you get a crown put on your head. You become a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. Wow. That's the proposition that is available to us. If you don't know him tonight, you could be crowned here this evening and become a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God because he's the king. Well, what of this kingdom? What's that like? Because I don't think I know the name of it. I can't see it on a globe map. I don't know where it is. Well, first, let's look at you know, the kingdom that was going to presumably be brought about with their request and when God said make them a king, theirs was going to be one that had borders and limitations. It had an edge, something that they could step in and out of and they were going to have a human king, someone that they could see, speak to, touch, someone that also though was flawed and was totally human and had all the issues that all of us face. But it's Old Testament, so it's material, it's physical then in the New Testament, it's quite different. In Mark's gospel, chapter one, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So it's at hand. It's within reach. It's near. You can, you can get it. You can grab it. I still don't know where He it is. It doesn't give us any instructions. Where do I go? to find this kingdom that is at hand. Well then in John's Gospel, it says, my kingdom is not of this world. Ah, it's not on a world map. You can't find it on the floor. You can't go in and out past a border. It's a spiritual kingdom that actually, strangely, still has a human king because Jesus came to identify with us as a human, died for our sin, rose from the dead, into glorious life, ascended into heaven, still human, and the whole time perfectly and fully God. That's the king. The kingdom has no limit, no border. It is without end. It is an eternal kingdom, one that will never fail, that will never, ever come to an end. One that can never be overthrown, can never be taken over by an enemy or an opposition. And one day, that kingdom is going to come in full. It's here now, but it's not fully come. We can enter it now, but one day, one day it's going to come in all its glory. And there will be no sickness, no pain, no sadness. Instead, there will just be joy upon joy upon joy as we all celebrate and gather around the throne of our King Jesus. Gather with the angels and the saints from all over history in glorious, glorious celebration. That's the kingdom. And again, that sounds like a mighty proposition to me. Rosie, do you and the band want to come up? That kingdom, that king, it all started thousands and thousands of years ago, right here. In our story, the narrative that we've been following through this, the dawning moment, not just of the kingdom of Israel, but of the kingdom of God. This is where it all Begins. Because the promise of a king was given through Moses back in Deuteronomy. We read that. The promise begins to unfold with with Samuel in our story and everything that we've read about so far. It then literally comes to life in, in Saul. And then in David. Human kings that we can see and quantify. But ultimately... All of those things, the promise, chapter 8 in this book, all pointing to the moment that was Jesus coming and fulfilling totally and completely that promise forevermore. I'm just going to finish by um, reading from the book of Revelation. In a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to stand and we are going to praise and worship our King. and and honor him and give him glory for his position, for where he is, for what he's done, for who he is to us. Let me just wrap up by reading these verses from Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Dawn of a kingdom indeed. They had absolutely no idea. Should we worship him? Should we honor our king together? I'm going to hand over to Rosie and the band, and they'll lead us.